Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 52. Today we will be reading Book 12, chapters 22 through 27 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast, Godsplaining. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find Godsplaining with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplaining.org. All right, before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. So St. Augustine is going to talk in this section and in the next section about how sacred scripture can mean potentially different things. And you might say to yourself, wait a second, is St. Augustine a relativist? I knew it. No, fear not. He's not a relativist. But St. Augustine does think that God in his omnipotence, in his all-powerfulness, can pour into the sacred page a variety of meanings and that the sacred author can be instrumentalized in this effort, so he might be aware of these different meanings, or he might not. But then we, who are reading the sacred text, don't always have perfect insights into it, and as a result of which, we have to be humble before the sacred page, not saying, this is definitely the only option, or this is definitely not an option, unless we have the guidance of the church in that, which is helping us to rule things out as, you know, fleshly, as he will say, or heretical, as we might also say. So, He's encouraging us to be open to the infinite riches of sacred scripture and to cultivate the habits of mind and heart, which will help us to do so. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 22. Someone might attempt to dispute against the last two opinions as follows. If you will not allow that this formless matter seems to be referred to as heaven and earth, then there was something that God had not made, from which he would then fashion heaven and earth. For scripture has not told us that God made this matter, unless we understand it to be referred to by the words heaven and earth or earth alone, when it is said that in the beginning God made heaven and earth. Thus, when it is then said, and the earth was invisible and without form, although it pleased him to speak of formless matter this way, we are to understand that this refers solely to the matter that was made by God, which was written about above, where it was said that God made heaven and earth. Those who maintain either of the last two opinions discussed above will, upon hearing this, respond, We do not deny that this formless matter was indeed created by God, the God from whom all things are made very good. For just as we affirm that whatever is created and formed is a great good, so too we confess that whatever is made capable of creation and form is a lesser good, though still good. We say, however, that Scripture did not say that God made this formlessness, as it also has not said about many others, such as the cherubim and seraphim, and those which the apostle distinctly speaks of as thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. 
Most certainly God made them all. Or if all things are to be embraced by the words, he made heaven and earth, what shall we say about the waters upon which the Spirit of God moved? For if they are included within the word earth, how then can formless matter be signified by the word earth when we see the waters so beautiful? Or, if it is understood in this way, why then is it written that the firmament was fashioned out of the same formlessness and was called heaven, whereas it is not written that the waters were fashioned from it? For the waters do not remain formless and invisible, for we behold them flowing so beautifully. But if they then received that beauty when God said, let the waters under the firmament be gathered together, so that this gathering action would itself be the forming of them, what then will be said regarding those waters above the firmament? For if they were formless, they would not have deserved so honorable a seat, nor is it written by what word they were formed. Thus, even if Genesis remains silent regarding God's fashioning of anything, and neither sound faith nor well-grounded understanding doubts that God fashioned it all, no sober teaching will dare to affirm that these waters were co-eternal with God, merely on the grounds that we find them mentioned in the book of Genesis, without being told when they were created." Why, with the truth teaching us, should we not understand that this formless matter, which this scripture calls the invisible and formless earth and dark deep, was created by God out of nothing, and therefore was not co-eternal with him, even if this history does not state when it was created? 23. Thus, having heard and examined these matters to the degree that I could with my weak powers, which I confess unto you, O Lord, that you know, I perceive that two kinds of disagreements may arise when something is reported by men who speak the truth. One concerns the truth of the very things that are reported, the other concerns what the person who reported them meant. For we ask one sort of question regarding what is true concerning the making of creation, and another concerning what Moses, that excellent minister of your faith, would have his reader and hearer understand by those words. For the first sort, begone all you who imagine you know the truth when your thoughts are false. And for the other, begone all you too who imagine Moses wrote things that were false. But in you, O Lord, let me take delight and let me there be united with those who feed upon your truth in the great breadth of charity, and let us together draw close to the words of your book and seek therein your meaning, through the meaning expressed by your servant, by whose pen you have spread your words. 24. But among all those many truths that come to the mind of inquirers when they read those words and understand them differently, which of us will manage to find the one meaning that will enable us to affirm this is what Moses thought and this is what he would have us understand in that narrative with the same confidence as he would have to say this is true, whether Moses thought this or something else. For behold, O my God, can I, your servant, who have in this book vowed a sacrifice of confession unto you and pray that through your mercy I may repay my vows unto you, can I with confidence equal to that with which I affirm that in your immutable word you created all things visible and invisible, also affirm that Moses meant nothing other than this when he wrote, In the beginning God made heaven and earth? No. For I do not see in his mind that he thought of this when he wrote these things, as I do see it in your truth to be certain. For he might have been thinking about God's beginning work of creation when he wrote, In the beginning, and by the words heaven and earth, he might intend here no formed and perfected nature, whether spiritual or bodily, but both of them having no order and as yet formless. For I perceive that whichever of these two had been said, it might have been true. But I do not perceive which of the two he thought of in these words. However, whether it was either one of these that this great man saw in his mind when he uttered these words, or any other meaning that I have not here mentioned, I have no doubt that he saw truly what he saw and expressed it aptly. 25. Let no man now trouble me by saying, Moses did not think what you say, but rather what we say. 
For if he should ask me, how do you know that Moses thought what you infer from his words? I ought to listen to him with an even temper and perhaps answer as I did above or at greater length if my questioner were unyielding. But when he says, Moses did not mean what you say, but rather what I say, yet does not deny that what we both say might be true, O my God, life of the poor, in whose bosom no contradiction is to be found, pour your soothing dew into my heart so that I may patiently bear with men who would say something like this to me. For they do not speak in this way because they have a divine spirit that would have revealed to them that Moses had in his heart the very thing they say, but rather they do so because they are proud, not knowing Moses' opinion, but loving their own, not because it is the truth, but because it is theirs. Otherwise, they would equally love another true opinion, as I love what they say when they speak the truth, loving it not because it is theirs, but because it is true, and on that very ground not theirs because it is true. But if they do indeed love it because it is true, then it is both theirs and mine as something held in common by all lovers of the truth. However, I do not like, no, indeed, I do not love that they contend that Moses did not mean what I say, but what they say. For even if it were so, nonetheless, their rashness belongs not to knowledge, but to recklessness. It was begotten not of insight, but of vanity. Therefore, O Lord, your judgments are terrible, for your truth is neither mine, nor his, nor any other man's, but belongs to us all, whom you publicly call to partake in it, frightfully warning us not to treat it as our private possession, lest we be deprived of it. For whoever claims that something belongs solely to himself when you intend for it to be enjoyed by all, and wishes to have as his own that which belongs to all, he is himself driven from what is in common to what is his own, that is, from truth to falsehood. For he who speaks a lie speaks it from what is his own. Hearken, O God, you who are the best judge. Truth itself, hearken to what I shall say to this man who speaks in opposition. Hearken, for I speak before you and before my brethren, who lawfully make use of the law for the sake of charity. Hearken, and behold, if what I shall say to him pleases you. For I respond with this fraternal peaceful word. If we both see that what you say is true, and both see that what I say is true, where, I ask, do we see it? I do not see it in you, nor do you see it in me. Rather, we both see it in the immutable truth itself, which is above our souls. Therefore, given that we do not dispute concerning the very light of the Lord our God, why do we dispute about our neighbor's thoughts, which we cannot see in the same way that we see the immutable truth? For if Moses himself had appeared to us and said, I meant this, we would not then see it either, but rather would believe it. Therefore, let us not be puffed up in favor of one against another, going beyond that which is written. Let us love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourself. On account of these two precepts of charity, unless we believe that Moses meant whatever he meant to say in those books, we shall make God a liar, imagining our fellow servant's mind was different from what he taught us. Behold now how foolish it is in the midst of such an abundance of most true meanings as might be drawn out of those words. How foolish indeed it is to assert rashly which of them Moses principally meant, and thus, with pernicious contentions, to offend charity itself. For the sake of charity, the very man whose words we are seeking to expound spoke all that he did. 26. And yet, O my God, who are the lofty heights of my lowly humility and the respite of my labor, you who hear my confessions and forgive my sins, I see that you command me to love my neighbor as myself. And so I cannot believe that you would have given your faithful servant Moses less of a gift than I would have wished or desired you to have given me if I had been born when he was and was set by you in that office so that by the service of my heart and tongue those books might be spread, books that for so long thereafter were to profit all nations and throughout the whole world with such eminent authority were to overcome all sayings of false and proud teachings. 
I truly would have desired had I then been Moses, for we are all made from the same clay, and what is man unless you are mindful of him? Indeed, had I at that time been what he was and was enjoined by you to write the book of Genesis, I would have desired to receive such a power for expression and a style that they who cannot yet understand how God created would not reject the sayings as being something beyond their capacity. And I would have desired that they who could understand it might find that whatever true opinion they had arrived at by thought was not passed over in those few words written by your servant. And if another man by the light of truth discovered another true opinion, neither should that fail to be discovered in those same words. 27. A spring of water in its small beginnings is more plentiful and supplies water for more streams that cover wider areas than does any one of those streams that flows afar from the same fountain. So too, the narrative written by him who spreads your words, which were to benefit many who would come to discuss them, overflows from his simple language into streams of clearest truth. From this truth, every man may draw for himself whatever truth that he can concerning these subjects, one man drawing one truth and another man drawing another through lengthier and fuller discourse. For some men, when they read or hear these words, conceive that God was like a man or some sort of mass endowed with boundless power, and then, by some new and sudden resolution, created heaven and earth outside of himself, and, as it were, at some distance from him, like two great bodies, one above and the other below, in which all things were to be contained. And when they hear the words, God said, let it be made, and it was made, they conceive of words that have a beginning and an end, sounding forth in time and then passing away. And after the departure, that which he commanded to come into being sprang into existence. Thus, too, such men would conceive of whatever else might be suggested by their acquaintance with the material world. They are still little ones who have carnal imaginations, and while their weakness carries on in this humble kind of speech, faith is there, as though in a mother's bosom, wholesomely built up, so that they hold with certainty that God made all natures, which their eyes behold all around them with their wondrous variety. If anyone despises such words as being far too simple, he, with such proud frailty, shall find himself pushing out beyond the nest in which he is nourished, and he will, alas, fall miserably. Have pity, O Lord God, lest they who tread along the way trample on this young bird, and send your angel to place it back into its nest, so that it may live until it can fly. So, in discussing the creation narrative, St. Augustine is going to draw our attention to certain paradoxes that make it so that we, we have to be more nuanced or we have to be more subtle in the way that we read the sacred page. You may have heard this said before, dear listener, that St. Augustine is one of those church fathers who gives us tools for a more allegorical reading of the creation account. So you have a lot of different fathers who are reading the book of Genesis, and some might read it more like literalistically in the sense that these are six days, as we know days to be. Uh, and then you'll have other fathers who read it less literalistically or kind of more metaphorically or mythopoeically. Uh, there are different words that we can use to describe this phenomenon. And here, St. Augustine touches on some of that, but he's going to get into it more in his other commentaries on the book of Genesis, which we have already mentioned. So, Father Jacob Bertrand, when you encounter this type of exegesis or this type of reading of sacred scripture, where St. Augustine is pointing out, okay, he's saying this, but based on what we know from elsewhere, this seems to be intention, like how are we going to sort it out? What, what do you take from this type of exegesis and how does this, you know, enrich your faith, the faith of the listener? Well, at first, I don't think it enriches my faith. Um, <laughs> that's not true. But what I mean, it, at first, it kind of makes me a little nervous because, you know, my mind is, is not that of St. Augustine's. So I'm not that intelligent comparatively. Um, more s smarter than a rock. I was going to say more smart 
uh, <laughs> which betrays this. Smarter than a rock, but not as smart as St. Augustine. But the sort of, at the top of the episode, as you said, the, is St. Augustine a relativist? That's my first kind of caution. Not that St. Augustine is a relativist, but like when we say that there are different interpretations of scripture, if we just leave it at that, it makes me a little nervous, you know, as to like what's actually right and who's doing the interpreting. Um, but with the guidance, as you said, of the church and the Holy Spirit guiding the church, I think we've a lot to rely on as far as like what is being declared as good and true. It's also not unreasonable at the outset to think that there are different interpretations, you know, because a lot of what's taught in scripture, even our Lord does this. He teaches in parables. He teaches through imagery. He teaches through example. There are different accounts of different things. You know, we have the four gospels, not the one gospel. We have two accounts of creation in the book of Genesis. From the outset, it seems that there are ways by which or that the prism um, through which we come to the truth of revelation by which God is teaching us who he is and who we are in return, that there are a lot of, we could just say, like different ways of approaching the truth. That doesn't mean that there are different truths, but that there are different ways of understanding, of getting, of reading, different ways that it speaks to us, these sort of things. So it's kind of an uncomfortable comfort in that, at least with me at the outset. Yeah, yeah. And St. Augustine will say, I mean, in his interpretation, he'll introduce other things that he knows from Revelation, uh, things that have been clarified by the magisterium. Uh, so that's clearly in the background here, that we have to have certain principles in mind and that we interpret sacred scripture on the analogy of faith, or we interpret sacred scripture in light of the other books of the Bible, in light of the reception of those books of the Bible by the fathers of the church and medieval theologians and the modern magisterium and things like that. Um, so that's super helpful because some people will tell you like, we just have to do a literary analysis and see what the sacred page itself says, which is cool insofar as we have the resources to try to establish what the inspired author meant when he wrote X, Y, or Z things, given his time, his place, his circumstances. Cool, cool, cool. Right. But also God speaks symphonically. So a truth over here is going to, it's going to harmonize with the truth over here. And St. Augustine has that confidence because of, you know, what he believes in faith. And so we can, you know, adopt a similar attitude before the sacred page. And I think that one of the ways he helps us to do so is distinguishing between those things that we have kind of on lock and those things which are more in flux. And he's going to draw a distinction between the truth of the matter, right? The truth of things. So like what actually went on in God's dealings with, with creation or in God's, you know, choice to create and then creating. And then what's going on then in, he'll say, Moses's recounting of it. So it's St. Augustine's belief that the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses. Other people in the Christian tradition think differently. They think that there may have been a variety of authors. We don't have to weigh in on that. But he's just simply here drawing a distinction between the truth of the things and then the truth of their recounting or maybe the truth of the narrative. So... Yeah, this is helpful for us to realize that there's no there's no just like unmediated access to the reality, that it's always going to be mediated by a sacred author, by a particular mode of revelation, by, you know, the church's tradition, dot, dot, dot. And that doesn't mean that we don't have access to the reality. It just means we have to be conscious of the fact that our access to the reality is mediated. And some mediations actually, they grant us more intimate, more intense access to the reality. Some might skew the matter, but, you know, like... We just have to be conscious of that. So I don't know if that's something that you, yeah, want to expound on further or if there are particular thoughts that crop up. Yeah, the thing that pops into my mind is the question of what are the scriptures? Like, what's the purpose, right? They're not history books. They're not 
I mean, they recount historical things, but it's not a book of history. You can't put the Bible and the scriptures next to like a, you know your U.S. history textbook and and like compare them in the same way because what's contained in the sacred scriptures is everything that we need or the things that we need with respect to salvation. It's a it's a recounting of salvation and, and grace and that sort of thing. So obviously, you know, in, in book 11, we were talking about time and these, the salvation, we talk about salvation history, you know, the salvation and creation exists in time. So historical things come up, but as Father Gregory is saying, it's mediated by human existence in time. That's how God chose to and chooses to interact. So even in the sacred word. So we have to be in a sense, like, okay with that, that it's not, you know, a direct thing as if God is speaking to us face to face, but decided to have things through the sacred word, through mediators, through authors, through other people's experiences. Um, but trust that, you know, in faith that that reveals the truth all the same. It doesn't, it doesn't mitigate the truth in any sort of way. Yeah. So St. Augustine will advise us, just be conscious of the fact that falsity can creep in, not in the sense that the sacred page itself is false, because it's not, because we believe since it's inspired, we also believe that it's without error, that it's inerrant. But there can be a way in which our read on the situation is imperfect. And that's, you know, that reflects the fact that we're weak and wounded. That reflects the fact that we are sometimes ideological or we're sometimes prejudicial in our interpretation of a particular matter. But again, don't worry too terribly much because God, by charism of, you know, like guiding the church into the fullness of truth, will see you through it, provided that you you know, subject yourself to the ordinary means of sanctification, which is to say prayer and reception of the sacraments and the Christian community and its communal deliberation on these matters. So I think, you know, what we can take away from that is just a, a kind of posture of humility before the sacred page. All right. So the text is deep and we can dive to the depths of that text for the rest of our life without ever sounding it wholly or perfectly. And also given our limitations as human beings, given God's generosity and pouring out his revelation with such largesse, we're, we're just going to be humbled by the fact that we're, we're never going to take it all in. We're never going to absorb it all as God absorbs it all. So yeah, errors are possible and also multiple interpretations are possible. And that's the big point of this particular section because he's saying, yeah, somebody's going to come at it from this vantage. Somebody's going to come at it from this vantage. Maybe like, you know, Matthew's going to want to highlight these aspects and Mark's going to want to highlight these aspects and Luke's going to want to highlight these aspects. And, and that's okay. But they're still testifying to the same God, his incarnate life, the way in which he interfaces or interacts with his creation. Uh, but they're going to highlight different things. And then you know, our interpretation downstream of that, we're going to also pick up on different notes or accent different features. And and maybe with the introduction of a modicum of error, but we're, we're going to also be limited in detecting that. The point of which isn't to say that we can't know anything. It's just to say that we can know something, but albeit in broken vessels and within the bounds of human limitations. So I don't know. I think those are good dialogues for for Bible studies, but also good dialogues for, for human life in general. What do you, what do you take from that? Yeah, it's, you know, he, he also talks about the tool or the principle by which we're supposed to approach and receive what's given in the scriptures. And that's, that's charity. You know, the recognition that God loves, that he desires us to know him, that he also safeguards, particularly through the Holy Spirit, the the passing on of revelation, and that we ought to approach and live in, in turn, right? That's the, that's the game here of what God's playing. He's not playing a sort of detective kind of figure it out and find the errors if there are and all of this sort of thing. It's, it's much more, and it's totally about his desire for us to know him and to live with him, even through the reading of the sacred scriptures. Yeah. So 
again. St. Augustine will introduce his favorite principle for the interpretation of sacred scripture, which is the principle of love. So he'll cite the double love command that our Lord rehearses in the Gospels, that you are to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So ultimately, our reception of the sacred page, you know, our reading of the sacred page, ought ultimately to terminate in transformation. It ought to make us better. And it might not always be clear to us that we're becoming better by reading the sacred scriptures because there might be certain temptations to like vainglory, like look at all these cool things I know about scripture or like pride, like I am the master of scripture because I've listened to the Bible in a year twice and now I'm going further still, you know, so that's not the point. The point is ultimately to be transformed by the realities which the scriptures mediate, which God has poured through the sacred author into the sacred page such that we, his sacred people, might be thereby saved. So provided that that is at work, it ought ultimately to translate into love in, you know, taking care of the Christian community in the ways that we're appointed to do so, you know, in a way that reflects our, our identity and mission as made to the image of God and sent in part as, you know, like ambassadors of that revelation and grace. So yeah, Father Jacob Bertrand, any final thoughts here for this section of Book 12? Mm, yes. Uh, we, as we have approached St. Augustine and the confessions with a bit of timidity, that the, our entire approach to, to God, to life ought to be with a good dose of humility and recognizing who we are, who we aren't. And that's not to say that we can't, we can't know, or that we're not made to know, but that it's like, we aren't masters, you know, very few of us are masters, but it's through our sort of the humble approach of sitting at the foot of the cross and sitting at the feet of these great masters, St. Augustine being one of them that we come to know that we're that our minds and hearts are opened and transformed by his grace so it's sort of a gift to receive rather than you know to impose which i think is an important way for us to approach all things but god in particular boom there you have it folks those are the goods for the day so we brought the goods provided that you recognize these as goods i hope you do um so then without further ado know of our prayers for you please pray for us and we will catch you next time on catholic classics <laughs>